Welcome back once again to The Stack, podcast first and only among its peers and therefore peerless. The podcast primarily about Herbert, a platform you should never expect to enter peerlessly. We are once again off hiatus and therefore fearlessly plumbing the depths, never leaden, calling out to Zod and Herbert heaven, hallowed be thy vein. This week we speak with Eric Newton, one-time family lawyer, latter-day relationship guru and podcaster turned Urbit evangelist. Eric is the COO of Talon, and he talks to us about Urbit's medieval period, transitioning a company from in-person to extremely online, and how one goes about disentangling a foundation, that is, the Urbit Foundation, from the company that gave birth to it. Let us pray. I don't hear any uh, screaming in the background. So your uh, child is napping or what's? Our little baby daughter is currently with her nanny. And she'll be back probably in an hour. So I have sort of a soft stop when she gets back. I can, okay. If we're if we're hot and heavy on some super great topic, I can ask her to stay for a little longer. So we're okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But the implicit a, question there is yeah. uh, well taken. She's doing very well. Thank you. Good. Good. My little, my little lovely daughter. Best thing I've ever done in my life, hands down, without question. Um, and she both know about like nine months. How how old now? She's seven months. Yesterday. Okay. This yeah, is how long you. This is how long she delayed our podcast. I just want to put that on your child. You know? <laughs> just about right. That's true. <laughs> Um, it's true. I, I had high, very high aspirations for how much I'd be able to accomplish in the wake of her birth, and I was just completely <laughs> uh, uh, brought to reality. There's no way. What you don't know is like now is actually the easiest time uh, because it's like after the uh, port, like the worst of the poor sleeping and everything like that, and before there's real mobility. Yeah. So enjoy right sense. now. Yeah. People say this, so I'm trying to really take it take it in it's true we're sleeping the full night she's got a she she goes down from seven to seven now which is amazing i never knew how much i could appreciate just sleeping for eight hours and uh she's trying to crawl but she's not really moving that far so i don't i you know i have i have her in the corner of my eye but i don't have to um be concerned that she's gonna you know walk herself off a cliff before i can get to her so, yeah. yeah, we've got this nice little, it's, I think it's a short window. <laughs> I yeah. I think it's a pretty short window. A little bit longer with girls, maybe, because um, oh, it, it is a little bit different. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, um, the the difference in sort of, like, physical mobility. I mean, it's all anecdotal, but, yeah, I mean, like, the, the, the I found it's just, like, completely different. I don't know about you, Josh, between boys and girls. Well, I, this is the thing you, you guys are talking about losing sleep and I assume you change diapers and things like that. Go, I, I, I tell the young men, go to China where 24 seven childcare costs you, I don't know, like a bag full of beads and a blanket and uh, you never have to change a diaper. You never have to wake up in the middle of the night. It's, it's funny. I mean, like, um, my my daughter the older one she like didn't sleep through the night until she was like four so it's like, uh like that wouldn't have even helped um and then the boy was more like eric's you know just you know basically around six months never not much of a problem so 
it's well, uh, you know, in in China they do the zuo yu, uh, yuezi, which is the mm-hmm. the sitting sitting the month. I don't know, Eric, if you've ever heard of this, but they make the the women after they have their child um, stay in bed pretty much uh, for a month. Well, your wife uh, very kindly sent her best regards when Romy was born to my wife. And if you recall, she reminded my wife to wear a hat. Mm. Oh, right. And so I, I went and learned about that. And I was, and I found <laughs> that there's a, a fairly strict regimen for Chinese women. Post-birth. Yeah, I think that I think the logic there is that um, if you drive your your daughter insane with all these crazy, well, they have all these crazy rules. I mean, stay in bed, wear a hat. You can't you can't allow your head to get cold. You have to um, eat only boring food. So it's it's uh, she she had to she had to eat like bone broth soup for a month. Uh, and I think that the logic there is that if you drive her insane with all this stuff. She'll be so angry at you uh, that postpartum depression can't possibly happen. So you just kind of yeah, fury fury pushes out the sadness. (laughs) Um, So Eric, um, tell us your your role at at Plume. You know, and and some of your maybe your background and history there because you're an OG. You've been there for a while. Um, I I think of myself as kind of a mid G. Yeah, but I'm the COO of Tlon. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see how what what sort of history what sort of history do you want? You want me to delve into the real depths or? I I, I mean, what's, what do you I mean, first, I mean, COO that obviously can be expansive. So what what is yeah. your what what are you doing now? So COO at our company is uh, finance, legal. Uh, also people and facilities to the extent that we even have facilities anymore. It's essentially Mm. everything that the business needs to do to be a business that isn't specifically product or engineering. Because I'm not technical. I'm a lawyer by training. So um, you wouldn't want me managing engineers or architecting Urbit. Right. Um, But, uh, you know, as part of the quote unquote C-suite, I contribute to strategy. We think a lot about you know, how to run the business as a business and have it exist for many, many years to come, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. How, so that's the how, actual role. How big of a change? I mean, were you guys always virtual or did you have physical space before and no longer do? Do you still have some real estate? What What's the structure? Yeah, all of the above. We started with actually a very strict um, set of beliefs that since we were building something so unique and so, uh, as you know, from whole cloth, uh, which is by, by definition, a deeply creative process, it was best if everybody was in the same room mm-hmm. because there's a kind of serendipity that manifests when people are together and can hang out over lunch and go walk to coffee and talk about their cat. And all of a sudden an insight pops up about the architecture. And we really wanted to facilitate that. You know, we, we thought ourselves, of ourselves as taking a page out of the book of Bell Labs um, mm. or something like Bell Labs, maybe without quite as much funding. And the that really, I mean, we really held to that despite, you know, many engineers, very uh, uh, deep set beliefs that San Francisco is a terrible place to be and wanting to move on and um, thinking they could 
be just as effective remote. Uh, but just like every other company in the world, COVID came along and it changed right. everything. So now we now we're fully remote. Almost everybody moved during COVID. We, you know, we pivoted very quickly. It turned out that we had all the systems in place to be a super effective remote co company. And and true to the engineer's word and I think ethos or something, social makeup, uh, their productivity did increase. Mm. You know, engineers don't want to be in a room all the time because they get distracted. They need to be focused. <laughs> you know, they need to be shut off in their dark caves. Mm. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, so actually productivity increased quite a lot that first year. Um, and again, our systems were totally sufficient to support that. And everybody gave themselves a, a raise by moving mm. to cheaper places. And uh, we had two pieces of, well, we had two separate offices in the same building that we used for different purposes. We cut one, so we saved a little money, got a discount on the other. Um, yeah, it actually worked out fine. I think we probably since then have begun to suffer a bit on the creative serendipity front. Mm. That's definitely taking a toll in terms of the Talon infrastructure team. Um, but on the other hand, the community's really been stepping up to the plate in the last year in a way that we'd never seen before to yeah. build features and and whatnot for the for the platform. So uh, you could say they're filling in the gaps or you could say it was necessary to put the stress on the system or I, you know maybe it was this right timing. Regardless, it's working out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think it would have worked out as well if they didn't have that sort of um, dividend from having spent so much time together before, you know, so if you go immediately remote, I could see how that would be a shit show. Yeah. For what we're doing. Right. I think for known. Yes. Yeah, so my answer to your question is yes, that I don't think we could have done what we have accomplished. We could have accomplished what we did if we had been remote from the beginning and it's because uh, as we because we're building something brand new from the very bottom layer of the stack. But what's happening is as we move up the stack, um, the processes are more cognizable to more people. And so mm. the distributed workforce makes more is more effective. Um, I think at the lowest levels of the stack, it wouldn't have worked. But you know, who knows? I yeah. mean, maybe if you started, what I, I, the wisdom that we always used to hear is if you intend to have a remote company, a remote first company, start as a remote first company. Don't try to pivot because you'll never modify culture effectively. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like good wisdom. We managed the pivot and perhaps it was because of COVID, but, uh, but I still think that's probably true. If I were starting a company today, it probably would be a remote company and I would structure it from the first principles to be remote. Yeah. Is it, I mean, like, um, from a boring operational, I mean, is it like messing up your taxes oh reporting God, and stuff to, Yeah. I mean, we have an, ex we have a really good bookkeeping and tax team, so we're fine, but man, it's such a pain in the ass. The, you know, I mean, this is my gripe across the board, uh, 
regulators, despite their best intentions, because I don't think these are nefarious people, uh, really are gumming up innovation because they just can't keep up. Mm-hmm. And and the, and this is a perfect example. And states want to protect their citizens from um, from employment practices that might take advantage of them. And so there's a suite of regulations that probably made sense ten years ago, but probably didn't make sense two years ago, and definitely do not make sense in the wake of COVID. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a real mess. I want to go back. Uh, we didn't answer the question. How did you get into Urbit in the first place? How do you go from a, a you were doing um, family law, I think, right? Yeah, that's yeah. I was a divorce lawyer. Yeah. Uh, let's I, see. I, so I was trying to put that nice spin on it. <laughs> yeah, you're not. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was. And there's a, a euphemism there lawyer. for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I did a. I, I will say I did a good number of prenups, but I'm not sure that's much better. Um, that's like a pre-divorce. Yeah, pre right. We did some adoptions too, so maybe that's okay. my saving um, that solves my soul a bit. But no, we. Uh, I did not intend to be a divorce. I never even intended to be a lawyer. Uh, I went to law school for an adventure because I'm foolish in that way, and uh, had a great adventure. And then came out and worked on a business project that was doomed to fail, and it did. And then I wondered if I too was a failure. Um, and really had no money and nowhere to go and only knew one thing, which is that I wanted to live in either Buenos Aires or San Francisco. And since I'd already passed the bar by that time, which I had taken just to prove that I could, not because I ever thought I'd practice. And it was the California bar, which I had taken because it was the hard one. I thought, well, it makes more sense to go to San Francisco. So I went to San Francisco. I had nothing else to do to make money, so I hung out a shingle as a generalist, which is insane. You cannot make money as a generalist attorney anymore. It's certainly not in the city, maybe in this country, you know, small village somewhere you could, but not here. Uh, and all the work that started coming in was divorce work. And then I, I happened across uh, uh, somebody who'd been in the business for 50 years um, doing a celebrity divorce practice very successfully. And he, just because he liked me, took me under his wing, uh, taught me the, really showed me the ropes. Um, and within a couple of years, I had this exceedingly successful practice, just a very un, unexpectedly, undeservedly successful practice. And so then I, I you know. You, so this was mostly like helping Facebook employee number 52 divorce from Twitter employee number three. And there's a massive pot of money and, you know, yeah, a lot of, that, a lot of, yeah. um, and then sometimes those people will meet somebody in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so that's, and then, you know, there, you can see why they might meet up, but you can also see how the cultures are very different. <laughs> uh, so it leads to <laughs> divorce. Uh, so yeah, so I had this very successful practice. Um, and you must have so many great stories you can't tell people. I can't and like tell that's kind of that's kind of kill you. <laughs> anyway, it's it it really is that. Yeah, like my my the stories I can tell are actually so what's the word insipid? I don't know there's not actually much to them. But now, yeah. But now, yeah. Um but yeah, so uh that's exactly right. 
I, I wish I could drop names. Probably best that I can't actually. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I might actually do it and then I would feel bad about right. myself. Right. Um, but uh, where, yeah, so I didn't expect to do any of that. I was just doing it. And then, uh, and it was, it was very, very emotionally difficult. I mean, it was very emotionally difficult, particularly because I hadn't intended to be a family lawyer. Some people really were you married? Were you married at that time? No, I was a single guy. I was trying to feel my way through being a good man and single and and ambitious. And mm. I don't I don't think I found that balance very effectively. I don't think I was a, that good of a guy at the time. Actually, I was something of a player. Um, but I did I did have this idea that I needed to get emotional. I needed to find my emotional compass in this career that I had. And my best friend happens to be a therapist, a very, um, very capable therapist. And I, I reached out to her and I said, "Look, this is this is brutalizing me emotionally. I don't want to become one of these, you know, uh, jaded divorce lawyers that you see who hate life and you know mm. been through six divorces themselves and just." So we set about just researching what causes relationships to be successful you know um as a way of helping people avoid ending up in either of our offices and then we spent three it was sort of just a passion project we spent i think two or three years just reading all the literature all the academic books all the self-help books looking at other people's programs and courses like john gottman and i don't know if you've heard about his work or um sue johnson some or harville Hendricks, some of the bigger people who do these relationship seminars circling circling actually guy singstock who invented circling is a personal friend on the side but okay, yeah it took okay. some of that stuff to it um oh, oh and, in that case in that case we're big big fans oh do you know guy do you, i mean do you know no, guy or do you just do no, we, we we only i think we read the you know we read lord voldemort's stuff and he was talking about it in one of his um recent sub stacks oh well that's amazing um, yeah, we should go hang out with him and do a session next time you guys are in town. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> next, next, next time I'm in San Francisco, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely do that. <laughs> I, I'm honestly, I'm, I will honestly be surprised if you don't end up here. Ah, uh, well, you know, give me, give me a job. Uh, okay. How was that? For the, um, was that good? Would be happy to. So anyway, so you're writing, so, so you're doing this deep dive into how relationships work or thrive or don't. Yeah. Uh, sorry. And I realize I'm way back in ancient history here. So if you want me to speak. No, no, this is good. You're, yeah. you're leading up to, you're leading up to Urban, I think. But so is this the person, <laughs> yeah, is, the is she the one that you started the podcast with? Uh, well, so, so we <clears throat> no. ultimately no. So she and I developed this course. we we started leading this course. We were taking couples through this process. It was super effective, apparently. Actually, all those couples are still together, as far as I know. Um, but the, the but the family law practice was really what was making money, and it just kept mm. growing and growing. And that was really taking up all my time. And it didn't feel right, but I also couldn't put it down because it was making me money. Uh, and then I learned about Bitcoin. I, it was like late 2010, early 2011, and my mind was blown. And um, I was, I was thinking about, okay, how do I, this, if this is money, what do I do? Do I pivot the law firm into doing 
law around this thing that nobody understands yet? Or, or do I just buy some or do I mine it? I don't know. And I had all these ideas. Uh, and this is going to sound random, but it ties in. I took a trip to Tibet. And it was intended to just be a vacation. Uh, but it ended up having a surprisingly deep impact on my my direction of my life. I ended up, we were there for a month and I made a great relationship with our guide who was taking us through the country. And I inadvertently put his life and his family's life and their livelihood at risk by just being an arrogant Western idiot who <clears throat> didn't follow the local rules and wasn't responsible for his impact on the world around him. And I just was really such an entitled little fuck. And um, came face to face with that in a way that I just had never had to before. And in the end, the harm that I thought that I caused wasn't actually caused. So thank goodness mm. um, our guide and his family were fine. But I had had to stew in being the person who had caused this desperately profound harm to these people that I adored and could do nothing about it. And the, and, and the sitting in that, the, the process of being with it and acknowledging it and just realizing that I was the person who had caused it inescapably um, really just broke me. <laughs> it just, it broke me in the best possible way. So I came back to San Francisco and I just didn't really, I just did nothing really made sense. I, I didn't want to wear my fancy clothing anymore. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to date the women that I had been dating in the way that I had been dating them. Uh, my, my law practice for sure didn't make sense. My clients for sure. I didn't care about anymore. It just my board seats that I was so proud of just felt like complete theater and, and ego stroking theater and um, nothing made sense. And it was at that time that I was looking at the books of the law firm because I was thinking perhaps I'd sell it to my business partner who I'd brought in a couple of years prior to that. And I found out he'd been embezzling from our clients for years wow. and that there was this huge deficit in our trust account that he refused to um, fill in and pay back. So that started this uh, cascade of <laughs> absolutely horrendous experiences that lasted for a year. And uh, uh, the culmination of which was I just lost everything. I, I, I paid that money back. I lost all my personal money. I lost the law firm. I lost, I mean, I sold my suits to pay rent. I mean, I, I lost <laughs> everything. And it was um, glorious. So needless to say, I never did invest in Bitcoin in 2010 or 11 or whatever it was because um, I was caught up in this stupid litigation. But once it was over and once the you know inevitable waves of fury and and fear really the self-hatred the um all of that came and went and passed i was just left with this really quite delightful peace uh i had a deep sense that all was well the world was just exactly as it should be um, and I started wondering, well, in a world where everything is just fine, what does one do? 
uh, and, and also given that nothing I ever thought mattered turns out to have mattered. And most of my decisions turned out have been based on flawed um, cosmologies. What, what do I do? And I didn't know. But I did know that those seminars I taught with Katrin were deeply fulfilling and they and the conversations I had with clients where they just got very honest with me before we started litigation uh, were interesting to me and useful to them. And I thought, well, I don't know. I could start a podcast where I interview couples and do what I used to do in the first stage of lawyering, but actually make it public. And it seemed as good a thing as anything else to do. So I launched the podcast and it was very, well, it was very successful, but it was also just very fun and it was fulfilling and it just felt like it mattered. It felt meaningful. It felt like I was, I was exploring a question that the, that at least I needed to explore, which was why so much conflict, why conflict, why, and particularly why conflict with the people that you love. That was sort of the root question of the show. Um, and I, 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 and now we're getting to how Urbit comes in. So I did that for a couple of years. It was good. It didn't make much money because podcasts don't make much money. Oh, you're uh, telling us, you know, <laughs> um, and I also came to the realization that I could do these seminars and help help. I mean, even if I ever did help some people with their relationship dynamics one-on-one but it wasn't actually solving the broader social problem that i was beginning to identify more and more and more and see that it was deeper and deeper and deeper which i at the time articulated something like something like the inevitable ways in which humans organize information has led us to have computers be the way they are. And that has led us to social media and the business model of social media is to manipulate people's dopamine receptors, which means that it causes people to be indignant and hate their neighbors. And that force is greater than my stupid seminars or podcast ever will be. And, and, and if humanity is going to survive, it needs to evolve. And I, and that's where I was left. Humanity needs to evolve. And, uh, and, I, and so I just felt disheartened about the show and, um, decided I was going to get back into the startup universe or get into the startup universe, um, as a pivot. So I started looking at projects, um, in crypto and AI and found that AI was the plaything of, uh, of major corporations. And I didn't mm. have access to that. And, that crypto um, was mostly scams, inadvertent or intentional. It was basically oh, no. all scams at the time. <laughs> well, I think we're going to avoid that in this case. Uh, and then Andy Bromberg. No, but you who, should see my portfolio. Oh, well, how, it's probably doing really well right now, I would imagine. Yeah, it's better, better than nothing. It was better than nothing. Well, those ICO boom of 2017 was for sure riddled with scams. I'm sure you remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not done so well. Um, and again, some of them weren't even intentional. They just were idiots, right? Who were raising money on hype that they believed. Well, you that, can sell a cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's yeah, still you can sell it in 2017. You you sell a cryptocurrency to fund your flying car project, you know. And now it's uh, to now it's the, it's how you move uh, 
you know, it's like the, the new tax scam. You get, you got to buy a cat JPEG for a right. hundred F. <laughs> I'm just salty because I didn't sell a cat JPEG for a hundred F actually. The thing is, I feel like you still could. Yeah, maybe. I, I I suspect you've got at least three more months of being able to sell cat JPEGs or buy and sell them. I just, I, as soon as I buy one, it'll be right. the one that goes to <laughs> know, zero. Right? Yeah, as soon as you get into the market, it's screwed. Yeah, I have the same feeling. Waifu, the waifu token. I don't know if you know that thing. I do know it. I don't know how yeah. it's doing. I remember when it came out, though. <laughs> It's bad. I mean, I, I, how it blew up. I, I made I made a good amount of money on it. I, I think it is uh, like it's just been a stable coin for the last few months, like around you know. For tax reasons, we have to say we never actually bought any of that. Uh, no, I, I paid I, I paid I paid taxes on on what I what I did. So oh well, in that case, no in that case, uh, you right. you I know you I know don't even touch this stuff. So I, I think waifu token was the first time it really it became starkly inescapably obvious that uh it's all memes right and but, and what's fascinating but, is that that's a stable coin now i mean yeah <laughs> i mean I, I, that's sort of an exaggerate but i mean like it's not it's not volatile right i mean yeah. like it's it's no more volatile than any number of stocks i could you know blue chip stocks that i could talk about so um yeah, I mean, it, I think you know. So I'm I'm a professional. I mean, I'm in financial services, uh, and what it it's all memes. It's all mimetic. It's all you know. Um, uh, th there's no actual value, right? You know, what I mean, like that, or that is a very abstract concept, and it's um, it it's it. It's very complex. I mean, I you know you you can't abstract it from just kind of human emotion and human, you know, greed and desire and fear and all of these things driving it rather than anything objective. But, um, but anyway, so you're like, well, yeah, it does seem like that's the case. You're you're saying that's value across the board. Anything right. that we assign value to is driven by that, um, right? Uh, collective unconscious or or collective decision making, which is emotionally driven, right? Yeah, yeah, that seems right. The um, uh, so so yeah. so going back, so so you're looking for it's ICO nirvana, mania. you know, yeah. mania, and you're looking for something to do. Yeah, so I start interviewing with companies. Not sure if anybody's going to want me. I'm a guy, I don't know, former divorce lawyer who ran a podcast. They, you know, I don't know. Um, oh, I should also tell you, I served a short stint as the general counsel for an early privacy coin that failed right away. So I had a little bit of chops. Okay. Um, and, uh, but one good actually, thing about Silicon Valley is someone yes. like you can do that, right? You know, I mean, yes. like in, in New York, that would be like, get the fuck out of my office. You know, I mean, like it, it's it's not going to happen. So, anyways, that's just yeah. in defense of California. I think my my East Coast lawyer self thought I was screwed, but not only was it Silicon Valley, it was crypto, right? Uh, and nobody could hire a lawyer at the time. So they, uh, and my license is active. So they, everybody wanted me, but I didn't, I ended up not wanting any of the projects. And um, Andy Bromberg, who is the CEO of CoinList was a, an acquaintance of mine. And I reached out and I said, is there anything real out there um, that would even, that would take me seriously? And he was like, well, there's this one project. <laughs> there's this one project. And actually the way he queued it up is he said, actually, I think 
that this might be the only project that matters um, in all of crypto, but it's not really crypto. So go look at this obscure video and they're in the middle of fundraising and when they're done, I'll, I'll be happy to introduce you if you want an intro. So I watched the obscure video and I fucking loved it. I absolutely fucking loved it, but I barely understood it. I think so. I didn't understand it. I really didn't. I mean, I had, I could tell that there was, I, I could understand a few things. One, it was clear that it was real. It wasn't vapor. The team was all engineers. They had an immense amount of code. The code was working. It was, a, it was doing a thing. And actually I booted a ship back then, which was all, you know, the interface was all in the command line. There was no landscape. Mm -hmm. So my non-technical self managed to follow the instructions on GitHub and boot a ship. And um, I was like, okay, well, this is real, but why does it matter? And that's where I just got these whispers of, if this works, it's going to fix the problem that is the problem that you think is the problem for humanity, which is this inability for humans to co coordinate or communicate at scale without hating each other. And before... Before dipping my toe into that, I didn't think there was a solution. I thought that where we are with computers was the inevitable place a society would end up with this exact business model just because of the way that things are. I never really considered that actually you could start, you could throw the stack out, start from scratch and build something that actually was humane. Um, but when I put all those pieces together, it was clear that there that there was nothing else I should work on. This was the only mm -hmm. thing to work on. Um, it, it was a brilliant team of mission-driven, focused, dedicated people who drew, truly, genuinely, genuinely wanted to do the right thing for humanity. I know everybody says that, but it, uh, this obviously has depth or you wouldn't be here on doing this podcast or you believe it has depth or you wouldn't be doing the podcast. And, uh, and so I, I, I did, I got the intro. I had a great conversation with Galen. Um, uh, knew it instantly at the, from the first meeting that uh, I could work for him. Um, I'd never really been a number two before. I'd always been some kind of a number one. Mm. I knew, I knew I could work for him. And uh, then he introduced me to Curtis, and and that's when I did my diligence on Curtis. So I hadn't actually mm -hmm. gone down the Mencius mold bug. I didn't even know he existed uh, until I was queuing up for that interview, and I read all the you know all the chatter about him and hacker news, I, hacker news, and I right. I just found that it was shrill. Mm. And uh, I mean I don't I don't agree or disagree with his politics. I actually haven't spent much time with them, but uh, I, I found that the response to him was pretty embarrassingly shrill. So it just didn't bother me. And uh, he turned out to be a lovely guy. So we had a great interview as well. And they made an offer a couple weeks later. And I've been with the team since early 2018 now. So that's why I'm sort of a mid timer. So other, other though, then, I mean, obviously, um, Curtis left the project, you know, for a variety of reasons, but, you know, so, but other than that, kind of how intact is the team compared to that time? Intact in the sense that, uh, has like there been a lot of turnover? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, not a ton of turnover. There's been a lot of growth. Uh, right. The team okay. at the time was, I think, I think when I joined, there were eight people or nine people and they had just raised a bundle of money and figured they were gonna have to grow and it had no capacity to do that. They're like, how do we, 
be a company. Right. And uh, so I sort of oversaw doing that. Right. Um, like not choosing you can spend money on this, not on this. Like, yeah. you know, right. Yeah. And here's how you talk to people and here's the contracts you need. And here's the structures right. so that people understand context. And yes, people do need to understand context and no, you can't just point them to the GitHub repository and you know, all the stuff. Right. Uh, so um, the team is fairly cohesive. I mean, I think we've lost a couple people, but uh, for the most part, all the core people are still there. And um, the one, the one core kernel contributor who was around when I first joined uh, left, but is still contributing on GitHub mm. uh, very actively almost every day as I understand it. Uh, so yeah, the team's bigger, but it's basically the same. And the cohesion, like the sense of community, the sense of mission is, is still completely intact. I've never, I've never worked at a place like this and never. Uh, I'm nothing even close where everybody everybody is here for the for the mission mm. um, it's funny I think I think I don't know I haven't worked at other crypto companies but I imagine money has to play a pretty big role at other crypto companies and it's not that I, I and I, I want our employees to get rich but it's fascinating to me how little that they think about it ever mm. you know um, so yeah, it's 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 a complete joy, yeah, to be here. And I mean, should work here. Yeah, absolutely. The um uh, and now, I mean, and I let us know if you don't want to get into kind of like financials and stuff. But I mean, like you know, now is finally like the revenue pivot, right? Of trying to do hosting and things like that. Um, has that really changed the mindset of the business? A little, but you know the the strategy of hosting was twofold um so i had been driving this idea that we needed a recurring revenue model um since because up to that point it had been selling address space yeah the idea was um we were kind of like a reit or something right we hold a bunch of address space and people will eventually develop it and it will go up in value and then we'll we'll be fine we'll be able to keep working and right. doing the things that we care about which you know for galen is really about about architecting a better world, a, a, a more humane world where um, people own their tooling and can really build their environment for themselves for their purposes versus living in a hotel room. And he wants to build something that can scale across generations in that way. And so he wants to build a company that can last for generations. And so his model was a REIT. Um, and I had been pushing this idea that we need a recurring revenue model for a long time. Um, but and hosting is something of a toe dip uh, in that direction, but mm -hmm. we don't expect hosting to be the answer, at least yet. Right. Okay. What hosting really provides, uh, you know, it's a nod at this thing that I wanted, but what it really provides is smoother onboarding for a for a wider circle of potential users. Uh, because in the end, we do need to cross several chasms in terms of adoption of a new technology. And I don't know if you're familiar with the thinking around the crossing the chasm book and all the theories there, but in brief, the idea is uh, there are these stages of technology adoption that are very predictable. Uh, 
if a technology is to succeed and, and if it is in fact new. And the first stage is that it, if it's correct, it appeals to um, technically proficient people who care about correctness. And they're referred to as the um, early technology enthusiasts. And these people like the geekery of a new thing. They want to help iron out the bugs. They don't care if it has documentation. They'll definitely work in the command line. They care about correctness. Uh, and that's where we have lived for all of Urbit. And that's a great place to live, but eventually you have to mature beyond that. And the place, really the next phase, typically that you you go and you move into is uh, this uh, phase called um, adoption by early adopters, visionaries, people who are looking for some sort of a strategic advantage over other people who don't understand the technology. These are the, the quote 10Xers, people who are looking for a 10X increase. And um, we never could speak to those people because they're by definition not technical. We couldn't speak to them or interest them because they couldn't engage with the technology because you have to get in the command line to use Urbit, or you did at the time. And so we needed something that could expand our, our, our circles to include early adopters. And landscape was part of that. You know, landscape is an interface. So now you can kind of make sense of what this computer called Urbit is because there's an interface for it, even if it's incomplete. But then you still need to get people into landscape. And so hosting um, was the way to do it for not quite normies, but um, less technical people. Normie adjacent. Normie adjacent, yeah. The vanguard of the normies. So, uh, you know, so if, if hosting succeeds, so we're willing to spend a lot of money and not make any for hosting to succeed on uh, in the narrow vertical of just making it easy for people to use Urbit. And then we'll probably open source all the hosting technology so that other people can do hosting because we don't want to be the only ones. It's better if there's competitors who are providing different kinds of hosting services. And then, you know, we'll figure out the recurring revenue model eventually. Yeah. And maybe this but you, you've, you've had, I mean, you guys have a lot of mouths to feed. So has it really just been address sales or has it been kind of a permissive funding environment you've been able to get um, investors interested in? We've never done, well, I shouldn't say never. In the very, very early days before I was around, there was a seed round and the okay. bridge round after that. But there was, these are tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of money. Right. By today's standards, it's like, right. it, you, it might as well have been nothing. Right. Uh, the vast majority of the uh, resources that we have come from address-based sales, and they're all because okay. revenue, it's all, it's all taxable. Right. Okay. We, we, we saw address space and that's what we use. Uh, I mean, there have been, yeah, we have a lot of mouths to feed. There have been some scary moments. Uh, mm -hmm. COVID was scary. Um, crypto winter was scary. Mm -hmm. um, and we still, I mean, you know, it's despite the fact that we have more code than any other crypto project that I know of, well, depending on how you define that, and more users outside of trading platforms mm. on the project that I know of um, and a bigger community, despite those facts, we're still deeply obscure. Mm -hmm. People that we don't know about Herbit. My boomer oh, dad knows about Herbit. Just because of you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I evangelize. 
uh, you're doing God's work. But if he had found out about Herbert from someone other than you, that would have been amazing. Yeah. That's, that's the moment I hope for is the moment where somebody's boomer uncle comes to them and is like, Hey, you're in technology, right? Have you heard about this thing called Herbert? That, that's going to be a good moment. We're not there yet. Uh, yeah. So, um, some boomer dads know about it. Some boomer grandmas know about it, but for the most part, it's still obscure. And, uh, and we've never really participated in the big crypto valuation right. booms or the run-ups. And I mean, we don't play the games cause we don't know how to play the games. We don't really want to play the games. We're not pumping up types. We're not hype people. We're builders and we build yeah. slowly. Uh, and I actually kind of think not being too rich has helped us stay focused. Um, yeah, I think I think it's too early because you, you need to have. I mean, the um, the lowest level address space planets, right? I mean, like those those really need to be accessible to people, you know. Um, and you know, the gas price. I mean, that's like very unfortunate because it it, it um, creates that obstacle to it. And then also that sort of next level, so stars. Um, at this time, I mean, like you want it to be reasonable for somebody who's going to be a positive contributor to the project to buy one, you know, to yeah. acquire one. And that, I mean, now it's kind of a stretch even. And it certainly if it was 10X, you know, like had participated with everything else, it was much more expensive. You're just, you're not going to have some like, you know, 25 year old programmer, you know, who's doing this on the side, be able to buy one, right? Um, and if they don't have that ownership, they're not going to want to, they're not going to contribute the same way. Yeah. So a blessing true. in disguise, I guess. Yeah. Blessing. It is, it has been a blessing in disguise. I will say as a counterpoint to that argument though, I've often, I, I have always believed that speculation is healthy mm. uh, for an ecosystem, despite what regulators think. I, oh, I, I certainly want, I, I certainly want that to kick off. I just, maybe it's just yeah. too early. It might be too early. Yeah. It, it, if uh, just to follow through on the argument, when speculation occurs, I think it drives mm -hmm. interest, and that interest yeah. sticks. Some spaghetti sticks to the wall, and right, and, right, and that that's probably a net positive. But, uh, but are you familiar with the um, this independent from Tlon uh, ERC twenty wrapper project? That's yeah, it uh, a little. We followed mm -hmm. the the emails and stuff like that. So that's the um, the sh not sharding uh, sharding. Um, what's the, uh, what's this one? What's this one called? <laughs> uh, they're Stop. calling it, they were calling it Stardust. I think right, they're Stardust. calling it wrapped stars or WSTR yeah. or something like that. Um, yeah. I, I read the audit. I read the audit document, um, I think yesterday. So, yeah, so what's, so yeah. So, so where is that stand now? It's moving the, yeah. so the background of this, uh, the background of this is that early buyers of address space had been coming to us, have been coming to us for years saying, you guys need to participate in the speculative universe. And we mm -hmm. have said, absolutely not. No way. We're a U.S. company. We've spent an immense amount of money complying with this incredibly opaque, difficult to understand, um, entirely stupid SEC regulations, and mm. um, we're not going to throw that out the window. No way, we're not touching this. And ultimately, those guys just said, uh, "Cool, we'll do it ourselves." <laughs> and we, and our response was, "Yeah, uh, this is a decentralized ecosystem, or it should be. So um, have at it." And you know, they messed around for 
a while producing nothing, um, sort of spinning their wheels. And then uh, I don't know why or how got their business together and produced um, a wrapper contract. So what the wrapper contract is, it's a smart contract, uh, which allows you to deposit your NFT star and um, and it issues you an ERC-20 wrapped star. And that ERC-20 is, um, as, as you probably know, ERC-20 is just sort of the trading fungible standard. So now you can take that over to the DeFi ecosystem um, and start trading it there or, or create liquidity yield, pools. Or yield whatever. farming of some sorts. Yeah, that whole universe that I hear about but don't really know. I um, don't. And, I do not participate. I just want the IRS to know. I, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know what I'm talking about here. Yeah, just, if you if you had participated, you would have lost your keys over the side of your sailboat. I'm sure. Right. I, I have so many times. I don't know. Clumsy man. Clumsy man. Yeah, clumsy. It's it's funny to go sailing with your your Bitcoin. So yeah. Uh, yeah so these guys built this thing. Um, and then what you probably saw was after they built it, they they reached out to us and then they posted this message on the dev thread. Right. Yeah. And then the message said, uh, well, we built this thing, but we think it might be pretty dangerous. So, hey, Tlon, could you help take us a look make at sure? It. Yeah, right. take a look at it. We said, oh, geez. All right. So we checked with, uh, you know, legal, you know, regulatory council and and their take was, look, you didn't build it. You didn't uh, cause it to be built. Uh, what you're doing was responding to the request of your community. Yeah, make sure it's safe. So, so you, that's that's an SEC it. opinion, or that's oh no. I mean, the okay. SEC is not going to ever. A, we would never reach out to those right folks, gentle persons. <laughs> and and B, although I, yeah, and B, um, uh, they would never tell us. Right, they just wouldn't. But our, you know, our lawyers were like, "Look, it's just like balance this against it. What's out there in the universe, and how have you right. actually behaved? And you've actually, we, and it is true. I mean, we we've done everything we possibly could do to comply, and uh, and we didn't build this, but we do have an incentive to protect the network. So mm -hmm. what we agreed to do is audit it. So we first reviewed the code, and then we sent it out to four separate auditing firms and had it audited four times. Um, so now the code's been audited where it's in the middle of the fourth audit right now. And then we also, the other big attack vector, as I understand that you have in one of these situations is that, um, any, uh, smart contract like that, anybody can build an interface for it. But that also means that scammers can build fake interfaces for it, which are actually designed just to steal people's coins. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we decided, well, we'd better build sort of the canonical or the trusted uh, interface for the thing um, and write the documentation for how to use it. So that's what we've done. Uh, we've audited the thing. We've built an interface for it. We're going to host the interface on a different website and point to it from urbit.org. So not on bridge. It's not going to be on bridge. It's not going to be on urbit.org. It's going to be on some sort of a new microsite. And then we're eventually going to give that to the foundation when the foundation spins off, which will be happening okay. pretty soon here. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, my take is that's the best thing we can do to protect the network in the circumstances where th the community just built a thing. Um, 
But on the other hand, I think it's going to have some really good uh, effects. To your point, uh, you were you were saying that the price starts to get out of control, and I mean it's already more than a lot of people can afford to buy one star. And as you know, stars are not divisible. Mm -hmm. uh, Sixty-five thousand planets does not equal a star. A star is still a thing unto itself, and that means mm -hmm. that you can't you can't you can't give people pieces of stars that they can work towards having a whole star if that's their their goal right um but it turns out one of the benefits of an erc20 is that it's divisible by nature so people can buy fractions of an erc20 wrapped star and the way the smart contract the wrapper contract works is once you've um, accumulated enough uh pieces of a wrapped star to equal whole star you can deposit that into the smart contract and it'll spit out to you a random star Mm. of one of the one of the ones that's been deposited in the past so um so that's a way that people can work towards so if you deposit if you deposit um an azimuth point and then later take one out you don't necessarily get the same one back correct yeah that's the point because that's i mean that's how you break the notion of non-fungibility right right each star is unique people buy stars because they are what yeah, they are the one that they are you know they have the image and the name and the number that they have but if you deposit them in this token contract or this wrapper contract now they become fungible and what you get out is just generic yeah generic wrapper and then when you put it back in i actually don't think it's random uh i think it might be that there's some right sure but you can't choose is the point right right the um uh and do you think that there's going to be a lot deposited in this right away I no clue, man. Right. I don't okay. know. I I really just <laughs> I don't know. It would we'll be see. cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll see. I I'm not. You know, I think if I were project managing it, I could say, but I'm not. I have no clue, and I also don't know how to make markets. That's just not a skill right. I have. I know it's a skill, and I also know it's a business. So, uh, you know, smarter people than I will figure that out. Hopefully, hopefully they will be. They will consider Urbit sufficiently interesting to do so um my sense of of things looking at at how apes operate is as soon as they can throw a star in a yield earning protocol it's going to be like a feeding frenzy my my guess you know as long as the market conditions are the, the way they are now yeah i suppose that's right as long as the market conditions are still going up and to the right in general yeah but again one thousand yeah. was the last uh, star sale absolutely nuts That's that crazy. blew my mind yeah <laughs> that was, was that legit i i think yeah it was open really open seat yeah i i had the i i, I maybe i'll share the link um on the, the on the website but i had the um ether i have the ether scan link somewhere it's it's okay. legit well, it's legit in terms of it's being on OpenSea. Well, right, right. Okay, right. Yeah. Well, I suppose was it a wash? Was trade. it a wash sale? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The, I, I don't know who bought it or who sold it. So I have absolutely, I can only speculate. But even prior to that, they're going for twelve thousand. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's. It, oh, there was another one for twenty thousand just two days before that. So yeah, it got up there. 
Um, and then I think somebody flooded the market, uh, somebody who's trying to get some uh, liquidity or whatever. And so well, see, uh, that's how market works, right? Yeah, right. Well, says, oh, I'll, I'll take 30 grand for star. Right. Sure. Here's 10. Oh, now it's 12. Right. Yeah. That would have been me, which is why I just, I just, hold <laughs> I, I never sell anything. I've never had a loss. <laughs> yeah. I've never had a loss either. I guess that's a good point. Yeah. I don't sell anything. <laughs> I don't sell anything. Yeah. So yeah, that's where that, um, that's where that project's at. And I do think it's going to, my really genuinely favorite thing about it is the fractional ownership concept. Mm -hmm. I really love the the idea of people being able to get pieces of stars. Oh, well, have you, have you heard about point Dow, by the way, the, the guys who just bought when the galaxy. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. That was the first naked galaxy that ever sold as far as we know. Yeah. Um, uh, and I learned about it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's I and love they're it. they're fractionalizing it through uh, their DAO, and I think that they're they're using sort of their own. Uh, they're, they're sort of like building building their fractionalization process through ownership of like a DAO coin or something like that. Yeah. So the experimentation around DAOs is is such is so heartening. Mm. I'm just so glad it's happening. Um, and I'm glad a Dow bought a Galaxy. What a great way to own a Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah, aside from the fact that it now creates a market price for naked Galaxies, which until that moment we... It did not we exist. Did, didn't did not want exist. to have. Yeah. And we didn't want to have. Now now there's a market price, fine. Um, but, man, it brings legitimacy to the value of governance, which in turn brings legitimacy to the value of the network. Right. Because the network, if you care about the governance of the network, then you care about the network. And um, uh, I mean, as you guys know, a, a galaxy, a naked galaxy, just represents a governance. Mm -hmm. One of two, one of two, yeah, fifty-six. Right. So that's what they spent. And I think it, it's a public transaction. I, I actually didn't look up the numbers. Somebody told me it was three hundred and fifty k. I think it was about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was priced, that. In, priced in ETH. The, um, so the next, I mean, the Se next 75, big, by the way, 75 ether, by the way, just uh, the, right. the, the, the next big thing will be this um, division of the foundation from Tulum, right? Yeah. Uh, it, or one of the next big things, I think probably, I think the, if you asked uh, the, the, the dev team, the next big thing is uh, software distribution. Okay. Oh, right. Um, but for my department, you are correct. The separation of the foundation is the legal hurdle that I'm suffering at the moment. I, mm. And I am I'm so excited that this is happening. It's just, I do, do you know the background? Do you want to know the background of, of this? We talked to Josh a little bit. I mean, I think, I think we know, but what do you mean by background? Or just any, anything about it that josh josh for example yeah i mean uh, i, I think existence. yeah um <clears throat> you know obviously this is kind of a, a long-standing thing in software right where you could have a software foundation that supports the development of <clears throat> you know that just becomes like a development driver and vector for some something but um i guess like you know so why wasn't it always separate that's that's always a question and what 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 benefits come from now separating it? Yeah, uh, so you should then hear the deep history here. Um, so as you probably know, uh, 
Curtis Yarvin invented Urban out of whole cloth, spun up the network live before this company Tlon ever existed. And that meant that he created from nothing the existence of this address, this network, and all the address mm-hmm. space on the network. And uh, he started just giving address space away to people because uh, it wasn't worth anything and he didn't know when it was going to be worth anything. And so anybody who would help or contribute in any way got big chunks of address space at the time. So um, his barber. Basically, uh, there's, there's... I don't uh, think he has a barber. Uh, yeah, yeah the, that's the, actually the best joke. <laughs> As we can tell from his public appearances, has never had one. Um, but, you know, there's like a Zen monk or two, actually, I think two separate ones who have galaxies. There's old friends of Curtis. There's, um, and then a whole bunch of just geeks who found it on GitHub and were like, oh, here's a piece of code. And he's like, here's a galaxy. I think so, actually in, in like 2008, he did a competition as well, where he said, if you can understand this code that I've written, you, you know, send me, you know, send me, write it up in whatever your language of choice is. And I'll give you, I'll give you a galaxy. And I, I'm sure he probably got at least two or three people that way. Yeah. I don't remember how many that was. It was at least two or three. I think it might've been four or five um, galaxies went out that way. And then fast forward a few years, his wife was like, look, we need to make some money. We have kids. Um, and so he started a company, got some investment capital from the more well-known VCs, um, very small seed round, just enough to hire a couple of people and formed Tlon. And the way that he formed Tlon was he sold about half of the address base to Tlon for a few Bitcoin. So uh, that's how Tlon got address space was by buying it which has strange implications for accounting that i won't bore you with um but we didn't create it and uh and then Tlon and curtis which was you know really just curtis decided that what would be really cool is if a certain amount of address space was earmarked for community and kernel development so that there would always be a fund of resources available to make sure that the um, kernel could keep getting developed over time. And the idea being that if address space increased in value, that there would perpetually be enough resources to fund that development essentially forever, right? Because you would, would not be able to outstrip uh, the cost if, if prices were increasing at enough of a pace. And so they set aside a big chunk of address space, a whole bunch of galaxies. How many? I don't remember at this point how many it was. It was like 50 galaxies or 60 galaxies, something like that. Half from Talon, half from Curtis. And they thought, well, and it was right about then that some other crypto projects were starting foundations. And um, and I wasn't around at this time, but what I've pieced together by just sort of looking at the documents and talking to all the people who were around, they could not figure out legally how to structure an entity for a foundation. They didn't have the time or the resources or the expertise to figure it out. And they were just like, fuck it, we'll figure it out later. In the meantime, Talon is the only one doing kernel development. So it might as well just custody these assets and spend mm. them itself. So that's what Talon did. Talon was the only one doing any development in those early days, you know, a few, a few GitHub contributors. So Talon was spending those assets and, um, and also giving them away. Uh, and then 
but they referred to them as the quote urbit.org assets but there was no urbit.org entity separate from Tlon. so it was a bit of a mess um it was written about transparency on the, transparently on the blog but it, you know and and actually nobody cared and then tezos happened uh, and if you guys remember anything about Tezos, they were the first big clusterfuck of a Swiss foundation where the mm. foundation ended up being controlled by people who didn't actually care, who were just trying to capture wealth. It turned up into tons of litigation, and it basically hobbled that project, which did, in fact, probably was, uh, arguably was technically promising, but got destroyed mm. by its foundation. And so uh, when I joined, we started looking around for, well, what can we do? in terms of spinning off a foundation because there are benefits to having an entity that cares solely exclusively by its mandate about the ecosystem and the technology separate from profit or any kind of other agenda right there's a benefit to that um but we still didn't know what to build and i went out and talked to the community and every single one of our galaxy owners that i talked to said don't fucking create a foundation it's going to be a disaster Every single foundation that's existed has turned into a political nightmare. Just don't do it. So um, we resisted and we stopped and we kept delaying and delaying. And uh, uh, Urbit kept, Atlan kept doing kernel development. So he kept spending Urbit resources that were earmarked for that purpose. Um, and then Josh came along. And Josh had been this whole time a fan of Urbit. Um, in the community, contributing when he could, but working on his own project uh, his, that he'd founded. And when that came to a kind of a natural close, he got in touch with us and reached out. It's like, look, I, I did well in my last thing. I love Urbit. I've been around forever. I'd really love to help in some way. And, you know, we talked to him about it for a couple months and it became more and more clear that actually what he was designed to do is he's like the human embodiment of everything you want a foundation to do. You want a foundation to understand the technology, care about it for its own sake, be excellent at developer evangelism, be able to effectively marshal resources towards developers who can help. And, um, and he was just exquisitely kind of designed for that purpose as a person. Mm. So we brought him on to run this quote unquote nascent foundation as a protocol. And he did it exceedingly well for, I don't even remember now, three, four, five months. And then Anthony had some health problems, who was our CPO at the time, and left, leaving a gap at Tlon. Josh stepped in to fill in the gap. And so the foundation project slowed. And that's where we are today. Um, we know that the foundation needs to be separated because it will provide immense value for the community. We need somebody out there that cares about Urbit qua Urbit that doesn't have the uh, restrictions that Talon has. And we needed to be truly, deeply, definitely, without question, not theater, totally separate from Talon, mm -hmm. completely separate. And in order to do that, you have to have people that you trust. I mean, we can't, we're not just going to give a bunch of galaxies to somebody we don't trust. Mm -hmm. uh, and Josh is really the only guy. Um, and Josh and the little team he's built. So um, we're spinning up the, the legal entity now uh and as soon as we can find a replacement for josh at plon um we will imbue him with the control of this thing and send him off as an independent operator and it will right. truly be independent plon is not going to retain any control of this thing at all 
except in so far as we will slowly dole out resources to it. We're not going to give it all the galaxies at once. Right. We're going to just let and see if it works. Give it a few. See if it works again. Give it a few more. Right. Like that. Okay. Uh, the other cool thing about the uh, the foundation before, since you've got me on the uh, monologue about it, is it's uh, we the problem with foundations is that you end up with this principal agent problem, mm -hmm. in, it, especially if it has resources, and and the trick is aligning incentives, and so we've really given a lot of thought to how do you align the incentives of this entity that's going to have significant resources and a bully pulpit with the people who matter in this ecosystem. And the best that we've come up with is that the board of directors of the foundation will in fact just be the galaxies. So uh, I think I think the way it's gonna end up having to be structured specifically is that there's gonna be a board and the galaxies are gonna elect the board. Mm. And then the board will hire the executive director that will be Josh, unless they fire him. Um, but it's really the board or, or the the what's in control of the foundation has to be the right people who have a stake in the in the in the ecosystem. Okay. So that's how it's going to be built, and Talon will recuse itself um, contractually from okay. voting on on that stuff. So Talon will actually have just really really zero control over the foundation, um, but the rest of the galaxies will have control. Is there like a quorum, like the Zen Buddhist monk? I mean, like, do they know that they have this right? and responsibility to do these things or the galaxies. I don't think they do yet. Mm. Gal Galen made a really good point the other day that I just never had occurred to me when we were talking about DAOs. He said, you know, the galaxies are a DAO. Mm -hmm. They just don't know it. And uh, I think that's absolutely right. The galaxies are decentralized, autonomous, governance mechanism that just doesn't even know the power that they have and we're about to give it more power mm. the good news is the galaxy table is made up of thoughtful responsible caring effective successful people so i you know, i'm just imagining some monk uh, in the middle of meditation on some hill in nepal getting pinged on his cell phone to go vote <laughs> for the urban <laughs> foundation Guys, we're we're, we're wrap, We've got to we've got to wrap a star here. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, let me, let's, gentlemen, we're 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 getting there. So can we wrap it up with one final question? Yeah, whatever sure. you want. Uh, I um I'm in no rush and and uh, whatever. Ask what you want. I try to keep it to around an hour, and we're actually people tell us that an hour is too short, and I chose an hour because I thought you know you can do your dishes and feed your dog while you're listening to it and then it's over right and then people I, always tell me that they're angry that we didn't go longer and it still surprises me when people come around and say hey man i really love your podcast got us right. into urban shocks the hell out of me when i when i'm listening to your show and it ends it's always abrupt and i was like what the hell i want to keep yeah. going there's a yeah. when I was running my show, I tried at first to keep it to a strict timeline, and everybody got upset with me. And then I broke the timeline, and I just went as long as the conversation went, and everybody yeah. was happier. So the problem just, the problem is that we often get these we often get people or uh, Andy who's who's also a person uh, will have to leave you know in the middle or not in the middle but you know like after an hour he's he's a grown man with kids who. 
have yeah. demands on his, on his time. So, uh, so I don't mean to blame you. It happens to me. I've I've had to duck out uh, once, but he he has to duck out occasionally for kid reasons right. of children. We are a family show. So, yeah. Anyway, last question. Uh, shall we do the the old tried and true? What's what's what is Urbit going to be in? Or when you're when you're ready to pass Urbit on to your kids, your yeah. address base, when you pass it on to your kids, where do you expect we're going to be? Where do you hope we're going to be? Where I hope we're going to be, yeah, is kind of the more interesting. I don't know where we're actually going to be. Um, you know, I, I, I really do believe in Galen's vision. Uh, that's founded in this principle that humans do best, are most satisfying, find the deepest meaning. Um, live the most fulfilling lives flourish if you will when uh when they own their tooling and and tooling means a lot of things but it really for me comes down to this notion of autonomy uh when humans have can have uh, that kind of autonomy maybe they don't control their destiny but they feel like they do and that and that provides uh, the sort of substrate for a fulfilled life. Um, I think that our tools have begun to own us. They've gotten out of control and we haven't even seen what AI will do. And it's uncomfortable. It feels um, at best tacky, like a Holiday Inn. At worst, it feels like slavery or some kind of slavery. I don't want to make too much of it. Uh, true slavery is off, obviously much, much worse than what I'm describing. Uh, so what I envision is uh, a universe where uh, people are back to being people, being in nature, uh, spending time with their families for the sake of doing so, um, writing, being creative, but ha but not at the expense of an advance in technology and convenience. Um, so often when people talk about the way that humanity could live a sort of more utopian existence, they imagine destroying technology, going back to some sort of agrarian reality. It's never going to happen. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. But we can fork off of the direction that we're going and have technology serve us again. So that's the that's the really broad answer. Uh, you know, the what I leave what I hope to leave my children is a world that 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 they control, that they are in possession of, where the tooling allows them to build the universe that they want to build for their for the sake of their experience and their families. Um, and and Urbit is the Urbit is what that world compiles to. Urbit is the neutral, um, clean, non-obtrusive uh, substrate for all of that work. And uh, nobody else is building that. I, I think that I think that actually humanity has to go that direction or we're in deep trouble. 
And every time humanity is in deep trouble, it manages to get itself out of that trouble. And so I think something like Urbit is going to be built. Something that uh, that gives humanity control of its tools again is going to be built. Um, and if that building of that thing is done from first principles, it's going to look a lot like Urbit because Urbit was built from first principles to accomplish that goal. And if it's going to look a lot like Urbit, it probably should just be Urbit. Uh, and nobody else is working on this at the moment, and it's already becoming deeply apparent that it needs to happen. So uh, I, I actually think this is going to happen, um, and that what it will look like is just a much simpler, calmer, um, more, more engaged and yet relaxing experience of computing. So I'm very hopeful for it. Now I'm curious though, did that bring any color? Does that does that color in a vision for you? Because for me that's very vivid, but I I understand it might not actually be particularly vivid for listeners. And I'd like to get better at talking about it. So I'm curious your feedback for how I um, expressed that. Well, I think I mean practically. I mean you know I think. There's um, such a number of things that Urbit can be used for. And I think, you know, partly, you know, even I confuse kind of the server aspect with the client, you know, so Urbit is not just sort of a Slack or Discord replacement, even if that's what it is kind of used for, for a lot of people. So I think, um, you know, what resonates with me is actually much more than the word calm, which gets thrown around a lot is humane that you you yeah. used you know where it's just um let's let's take i mean there's not uh it's not universally bad what has come out of um say social media or other aspects of technology um so we don't need to be like industrial society in its future let's blow it all up like you said um but what can we do to take what is good from that and make it actually sort of benefit to people who use it and own it yeah okay yeah thanks for that i think that's that's right it's not um uh it, it is about humane computing and um what did i want to riff on about what you said it's not uh i don't know i've lost it i'll come back i can see josh was going to say something was i oh i thought you were I was going to answer your question as well. Um, yeah, it, the the thing is, I guess it's a it, it's a I I I I've been answering this question pretty piecemeal, like on the on the blog and and things like that, and on Twitter. Uh, and for for us, it's the um, I, you know, it's it's like uh, the digital world is land, but but I mean, sort of like what you were talking about earlier, that the uh, network is so high quality because everyone has a stake. Uh, so well, everyone's got a stake except for common uh, common owners. And so, if you're in Urbit, you've either delivered some good to the network and gotten um, some network space as a result, or you've actually put your money where your mouth is. Of course, you know, there will be the speculative stuff at some point, but um, I don't know. For me, it's the, it's the consistently high network quality 
so mm-hmm. of people it's a people quality so far not i mean that's like one one minor aspect of this whole thing but um uh, there was a low for me, you know, during uh, probably during DeFi summer last year, there was a low for me and I kind of fell off, but it has um, it has uh, sucked me back in and the romance is stronger now than it was when I got on of it, which was like March, March of 2020. Fired the divorce lawyer and yeah, you know, basically you're, you're back with him. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to run out of battery in like two minutes. Okay. All right. Well, let me take uh, 60 seconds of that and, and say what I now remember I wanted to say because mm-hmm. it, it riffs on what both of you said. And that's that the challenge with answering the question of what is Urbit going to be or even what is it now is that the answer is that it's three huge, vast things, which any one of them could be multiple other things. It's a brand new computer built from the ground up to be private, secure, and ownable by its users. It's a peer to peer. Uh, encrypted network that cuts out intermediaries so that your data and traffic isn't spied on. And it's a decentralized identity system that lets users actually truly, truly, without any theater about it, own their piece of the network. And when those three things come together, the possibilities are vast. And so to make any sense of them at all, we built this Discord Slack thing so that people could at least engage with the tiniest sliver of this vast, vast potential. And so that's understandably where people get stuck, but there's so much more because a computer is everything. A computer is everything about how humans engage these days. It's the, it's the substrate for all human interaction. And all inter-human interaction today is mediated by a system that not because it's evil, but just because it is the way it was designed um, results in business models that cause data to be uh, corruptible, uh, uh, impermanent, and constantly spied upon. And our system is the opposite of all of those things. It's ownable, it's durable, it's private. And that just makes an entirely better human engagement possible. Excellent. Thank you for listening. Please visit us at www.thestack.link or find us on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word. And please remember to like and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Josh, and with Andy, we are The Stack.